take out your Bible and open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you would. We are in the fourth week of a five-week, five-part series on the gospel. We're doing this series a little bit different than what we typically do. Uh, Typically, we take a a book of the Bible and uh, we start working through it, start to finish section by section, paragraph by paragraph. Paragraph. This series is different in that we've taken one text, one particular text, this one in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, and we are staying in this text for all five weeks of the series. So that we might mind the depths of what Paul has to say about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is his exposition of the gospel to the church at Corinth, and as we get started today, I, I want to catch us up just a bit on what Paul has said to us already over the past three weeks. In week one, we discovered the reason that Paul wrote this letter to the church of Corinth. See, the church had lost its way. It had lost its identity. It was not much different than the world around it. And in fact, in some ways, it was worse than the world around it. And that was reflected by the problems within it. Marriage problems, relationship issues, immorality, division and disorder among the saints, division uh, regarding how they were to worship together, legal issues, all symptoms of a greater identity problem, a greater issue that that laid at the root of these symptoms. So Paul writes this letter, this corrective letter to the church at Corinth and to ours to get them back on track, to remind them of their identity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says to them, you've lost your way because you have forgotten what is first. What is of first importance? And Lloyd helped us to see how it is that the gospel matters most in the lives of the church at Corinth and in our lives today. And then in week two, uh, Michael began to show us uh, what lies beneath the gospel. Paul very clearly articulates the gospel, what it is, in very simple terms. And uh, Michael began to look at the theological idea behind the gospel, the idea of substitutionary atonement. God is great, God is righteous, man is not, and Christ died in our place, on our behalf, instead of us. You might remember Michael's definition. Christ died in our place, on our behalf, instead of us. Substitutionary atonement. This is the gospel that Paul preached. This is the gospel that Jesus himself preached. And then last week, in in week three, Paul helped us to see, he helped the Corinthians to remember who they are in Christ, who they are. Their identity in Christ personally. And he does this by by taking them back to all of the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't have the new at the time, so it would have been all the Old Testament scriptures, but this is also true with the New Testament scriptures for us today. Paul takes them back and he takes us to the grand narrative of the whole Bible, the whole story, in which everything points to the central figure in the story, that is the person of Jesus Christ. And in that, Rob Sweet showed us how this story, the whole of it, is actually our story too. How this is the narrative that 
is our lives, for it is in this story that we find out who we are. Children of the one true king. Children of the one true king and all that means for us today. This single narrative is the defining narrative of our lives, which brings us to today. What is it that Paul would have us to know and to apply about the gospel in week four? And for the answer to that question, we do go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You've turned there. I have not. We're going to look at the first two verses, verses one and two. And in those two verses, we're going to see three phrases specifically about how the gospel works in us now, how it works in us today. So follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 1. Now I, this is Paul speaking, now I make known to you, brethren, make known to you, church, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, and by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. This is the gospel I preached in three phrases, that you received, which you did receive from me, in which you stand, and by which also you are saved. And, and, and I highlight these three phrases because I, wanna, I want you to notice the three verbs here. This is where we can get underneath what Paul has to say to us about the saving work of the gospel in our lives today. Look at these three verbs. Which you received, past tense. Heard the gospel from me when I came to preach it, and you did something with it. You received it. You believed it. You placed your trust in it. That happened when I was here before. Past tense, second phrase. Look at this verb, in which you stand, present tense. In the gospel, you stand, you remain. It is yours now, today, present tense. You are standing, you will stand, you will not fall down. It's yours, you will keep standing in it, the gospel, present tense. Now look at this last phrase, third phrase, and look at this verb here, by which you are saved. Interesting here, this is actually present tense as well. A short study of this verb in the Greek for save shows us that this is a present passive verb. It's actually better rendered, which which, um, is true about newer translations today. It's actually better rendered this way, by which you are being saved. Fools us at first glance, but that's not what Paul intends. So we're saved, right? past tense by which you received the gospel we stand in it and we are being saved by it now what does paul mean here how can that be true i'm already a christian i've already placed my trust in christ haven't i already been saved well yes yes you have and paul says Salvation is more than that. The gospel is not finished saving you yet. You see, it's easy for us to think about the gospel or salvation in our own lives as it specifically relates to us. It's easy to think about that as a singular event in our lives. 
the moment that we first believed, that moment or that short period of time when we first placed our trust in Christ. But by the way that Paul uses the verb here, he is saying that there's something more about salvation. And I don't want us to get confused here, so I, I want to take us back just briefly to three, lo- three theological terms that I, I touched on four weeks ago, and then Lloyd did again just briefly three weeks ago. Three components, three parts to our salvation. Three theological terms. Here's the first, first term justification. Now, justification is the part of salvation that we most often think about as it relates to our lives. It's that moment that we first believed. I just mentioned it a moment ago. See, justification is a one-time act of God whereby he declares us not guilty, not guilty, but righteous instead. Not on the basis of our own righteousness, but on the basis of our belief in Jesus Christ. And when we believe Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, the gospel, his righteousness is credited to us. And in that moment, that we're justified, justified in Christ. Our eternity is secure forever. Think about it this way. Our standing before God is secure forever. Justification. Most of us in the room, certainly for those at the church in Corinth, that has already happened. That was in the past. Now, second theological term, part of our salvation is glorification. This is a future day, a day that is coming in which we will be glorified with Christ, in which our salvation will be made complete. We won't need saving anymore. That work will be done. That's future. Justification happened for those of us who have trusted Christ. Glorification will happen when every part of our being, our bodies, our minds, our heart, our soul will be made new, renewed, resurrected like Christ and glorified with him. Now what Paul is talking about here is the third theological term, the third component part of the salvation and that is sanctification. Sanctification is the ongoing process by which we change, by which we grow, say it this way at fellowship, by which we mature in the faith over the course of a lifetime. You see, it's not just that Jesus died, was buried, raised, and appeared. It's not just John 3.16, though Those are some of the most hopeful words in all of Scripture. It's the implications of all of that today. Say it this way, the gospel, it reverberates in our lives today. And in its reverberations in our lives today, it continues to transform us. What Paul's talking about here is the implications of the gospel. He's talking about here is how the saving work of Jesus affects us affects our relationships and our thoughts, our motivations and our behaviors, our actions, our fear and our insecurity, our hopes and our dreams. It's how it affects every aspect of our personhood right now. You see, the saving work of the gospel, it does not grow dim after we first believe. It only just begins to glow in us. And that gospel burns brighter and brighter by the power of the Holy Spirit within us to change us over the course of our lifetimes until the day that Jesus returns again and he shines 
in all of his glorious brilliance, okay? Now, this leads us uh, to a question that I think is very important. It's a question that I actually think we must answer as it relates to the gospel. And I believe that if we can answer this question well, it will help us move from what is uh, a bit cerebral to something that all of us can apply in our lives. From something as it relates to sanctification, salvation, the gospel that is a little bit intangible to something very concrete. Uh, Something that is right now a propositional truth by Paul, by me to you, a propositional truth to a very personal reality. And my question is not whether the gospel continues to change us. I think that it does. I believe the word of God to be true and to be trustworthy. Worthy. I don't think Paul a liar. And I've also seen evidence of the gospel's work in my own life. Not the same person today that I used to be. I think most of us in the room would agree with that. This is God's word that I believe it to be true and I've seen it, seen pieces of it in my own life. I don't have the question about does the gospel change us? My question and ours this morning is actually how does the gospel change us? What does that even mean? What what does it look like? How does that work in my life? Simple example, when I go home today from teaching and I'm tired, preparing for another teaching opportunity later this afternoon and my kids are at each other because they're tired and Hillary and I are missing each other. We're just a bit off or a bit snippy and and I go to either withdraw, I want to withdraw, or I go to, to impatience and frustration, either flight or fight in those moments when, when we engage in these ways, this family dynamic that is almost always true after church, the last service on Sunday. When, when we go there, how is it right then and there that the gospel is connected to my sanctification? How is it? How is it right there that the gospel can change me, that I can live differently in light of it. My hope in the time that we have left this morning is to answer this one question. How do we actually apply the grace of the gospel to our lives right now? How do we do that? And I want to do that in this way. Uh, Many of you know that I have been helping to lead the uh, the campus in Davidson County. We've got a, a, a small group congregation. It's a core group right now that's meeting in Hillsborough Village at Aiken Elementary School. And, and we have been going through a book that has been very helpful to us in, in anchoring us, the work that we're doing now and the work that we will do when the doors open. By the way, one, one congregation that is a part of one church, we actually will have three congregations, Franklin, Brentwood, and this part of town, wherever we end up, Hillsborough Village or Midtown, that three congregations, one church, what, what it will look like when we open the doors. And this anchors us in the gospel, which is where we've begun because of its importance in our lives individually and in the church at large. This book is called The Gospel Primer. The author, Caesar Kalinowski, does a great job of framing it up, answering this question in a way that I think we can get. So good, in fact, that I'm going to let some of what he says in chapter 5 in in, in this book guide us as we answer our question today. I'm going to let it guide us because it has been guiding us uh, there. How do I apply the grace of the gospel in my life right now? Well, I want us first to consider this. We begin to answer that question 
when we set our gaze upon the character of God. What do you mean? This is what I mean. Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of what God is like. There's life, death, and resurrection. He demonstrates who he is. By the way, Jesus is God, fully divine, fully man when he walked on this earth. He demonstrates for us what God is like. And in his life, death, and resurrection, we see God's greatness, God's glory, God's goodness, and God's grace on full display. And when we set our gaze, not on ourselves, not on our circumstances, but when we set our gaze on the character of God, we actually release the power of the gospel to continue its glorious work in us. So this morning, we're going to look at four attributes, four aspects of the character of God. How these four eternal truths about God, how these truths about God actually change us, okay? Here's the first. God is great. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. Well, how do you get there from the gospel? Well, here's one way. Where do we see the greatness of God most visibly in the gospel. It's in the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus was raised from the dead when it seemed that all was lost. You don't have to turn here, but listen to the way Luke describes the greatness of God in the resurrection. I'll set the context and then we'll see it. A man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. He had not consented to the plan and action of the religious leaders. A man from Arimathea, city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate, Roman governor, and asked for the body of Jesus. He took it down from the cross and he wrapped it in a linen cloth and he laid Jesus in a tomb, cut into the rock where no one had ever laid before. But... On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, meaning some women who were followers of Jesus, came to the tomb bringing spices, which they had prepared. And they found in front of the tomb the stone that used to cover it rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And they were confused, perplexed, the text says, about this. And when they were, behold, two men suddenly stood before them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified, bowed their faces to the ground, these men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Why? Because God is great and he is in control. Even of his own life and death, he controls. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. Let me ask you a question here. I want you to think about this over the course of the last week. Over the course of the last week, which of these things did you experience more often? Let me give these to you in pairs. Which of these things were the predominant feeling or emotion or experience, okay? Was it joy or stress? Joy or stress? Was it confidence or 
uncertainty. Did you feel more loved or dismissed, even rejected? Was it more content or was it more dissatisfied? More peace or more anxiety? Which column? Was it left or was it right? That you didn't have some of both, which were predominant. You see, we say that God is in control of all things, that he is sovereign, he's powerful. We say that, but then we, we actually live a bit differently, don't we? It's hard to place our trust fully in that. There's so many details to our lives that need to be worried about. We need to get anxious over. It's like I know in my head that God is in control. I would say that all day long, but in my heart, I just don't fully trust it. And so, therefore, I must work to control people or situations in my life. How's that working out for you? It's exhausting for me. It doesn't work very good at all. Now, I know there's some in this room who had a great week. I'm glad you did, and all I'd say to you today is, you have another week coming, (laughs) right? There'll be a moment this week or the week or the month to come where you will battle God for control again, right? We all do. We do. But if we were to fully trust the character of God, if we were fully to trust the fact that He is great than that he is fully aware and aptly equipped for everything in life, then, and only then, we would rest. Even in the here and now. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. Number two, second truth about the character of God and how it changes us. God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. When Jesus came, out, came up out of the grave in all of his glorious brilliance, the life of a man named Peter changed forever. He went from denying Christ to defending the faith. From a bold-faced liar to boldly proclaiming the gospel, he went, Peter did, from the fear of man to the fear of God. Let me ask you a question here as well, and I want you to think about this just for a minute. When it comes to your self-worth, whose affirmation do you desire the most? Is it somebody in your family, parent or spouse? Maybe somebody at your work, a boss or a partner or a client. Maybe it's your only client. You have to gain their affirmation. That you want more of their affirmation for your self-worth, not just for your job. Maybe it's a friend or somebody else. Maybe it's somebody who's angry with you, mad at you right now. You're working so hard to get their approval back, to please them. Can I tell you what it is for a pastor? It's all of you. That's who it is for a pastor. It's where we look for affirmation and approval. When we lose sight of the glory of God and all that the work of Christ has already done on our behalf, to save us, 
to call us good and adequate even when we're not, when we lose sight of that approval, that affirmation, our eyes go horizontal, mine do. And I feel only as good as the something that somebody said about the message that I just gave. So easy to go there for all of us. Whether we're aware of it or not, easy to be controlled by the opinions of others. Either we crave approval or we fear disapproval. We fear rejection, the fear of man. And what we need, actually, is a bigger, better view of the glory of God. It's not just stop fearing man, just stop it. Stop it. No, it's, it's not that. It's actually that we need to replace that very natural inclination in us with something else. Bigger, better view of the glory of God and what it means to fear him. And of course, no better place to go there than the Psalms. Just listen, you don't have to turn here. Psalm 96, here's what the psalmist writes about the glory of God. He starts with the greatness of God, which fits what we're doing today. And then he goes to the glory. Here's what he says for... Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the peoples, all the things that we turn to instead to get affirmation are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his house, sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and honor. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name alone. And when you do, when you see him for who he really is and you ascribe to him the glory that is him, that is his essence, I want you to remember that the one who is the most glorious in all the universe is also the one who is desperately pursuing you. He's also the one that delights in you. He is the one that will never, ever reject you. Think on that and you will be changed. One, God is great, so I don't have to be in control. Two, God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. Three, God is good. God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere for my satisfaction. God is good, in fact, so good that I don't have to look anywhere else to fill the deep longing in my soul to be fully satisfied. Did you know that God made you to be loved? God made you to be loved. It isn't unique to you or anybody else that's walked this planet. It's true in every single one of us. God made you to matter. God made you to find purpose and to find meaning. God made you with a need to be satisfied. God made you to be satisfied in him. But because we're not sure that he will fully satisfy and because we believe that there are other things that will, we try to meet those very real needs in our lives with things that are not healthy. Try to meet those needs in unhealthy ways. I want you to hear what C.S. Lewis writes about this in his book, The Weight of Glory. He writes, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum." 
because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Even as Christians, far too easily satisfied when the gospel offers way more. We get sucked into the things around us that we think will give us life and then we get bitter and angry when they fail us. You know what the gospel sounds like today? It's as if God is standing on a mountaintop with a voice that the whole planet can hear. He's just calling out to all mankind, don't you know that I love you? I made you to be loved. I am love. I am the very thing that you need. And I desire more than anything else to give that love to you. Don't you know that my grace is sufficient? It is sufficient. Can't find grace anywhere else on this planet. I knew you would need it. That's why I provided it. I wanted to. Don't you know that I made you? Don't you know that I made you so that I could meet your every need? I made you to get hungry and to get thirsty and to need rest so that you would know that I'm the one who provides reverberations of the gospel. That's what it sounds like in our lives today. Trust me, I'm here. I won't fail you. I alone can satisfy. God is great. I don't have to be in control. God is glorious. I don't have to fear others. God is so good. I don't have to look anywhere else for my satisfaction. And finally, fourth, Fourth, eternal truth about the character of God and how it then sanctifies you and me. Here it is. God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. God is gracious, so you don't have to prove anything to him. Listen to how this is described in this book, The Gospel Primer. I just love the way that he wrote it. Here's what he says. We can spend our life trying to prove ourselves worthy, valuable, or right. I want to prove to myself that I am good enough or desirable. We strive to impress others and constantly seek their validation and approval. Ultimately, we try to impress God with our lives so that he will then bless us, so that he will then make our lives happy and he will be happy with us. The grace of God is so simple to understand and yet so hard to grasp. We seem to be hardwired to think we must do something to make God look and act favorably toward us. But remember, while we were yet sinners, he sent his son Jesus to die in our place, the ultimate act of his grace toward us. And when we really believe in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, that God is gracious, we will then stop trying to prove ourselves and earn his love. Here's a question that just haunts me. I want you to answer it for you. When you sin or you perform badly in some part of your life, how long does it take you to know, to really know deep down that you are forgiven? How long does it take you to find peace 
in your forgiveness. How long? It takes many of us a long time because it's hard to grasp the grace of the gospel. It's hard to understand that there is nothing that I can do to change the way that the Lord Jesus Christ feels about me. Nothing I can do to enhance it, nothing I can do to diminish it. All he asks of me is to rest in it, to sit in his grace. I was with somebody this week who was just beating themselves up for something that they forgot. It was significant to them. Something they forgot, how it was going to impact the person that it related to and what they might think of them. Just beating themselves up. Honestly, more angry at themselves for not getting it right than all this ancillary. I found myself just saying to this person, you know, it's... It's okay to make a mistake, right? Like, it's okay to be wrong, to forget something, certainly. It's, it's okay to need grace. We were born that way. That's the gospel, isn't it, that we need grace? And as soon as the words came off my lips, I remembered yet again how much I need those same words to be true in my own life. How often I have to repeat them to myself. I repeated them to myself last night in the service and first service and second service now. I repeat it again. That's intentional, not just for you, but for me. And it'll come to mind again later this afternoon when I just go, dead gummit. Another mistake. I need God's grace. Why do I keep striving for perfection? Why do I have to be right? I will never be. It leads me to my own life, and it leads me to this as well. You know, when I go home from teaching today, and I am tired, my kids are at each other, and it's because they're tired from a crazy weekend. And My wife and I are just missing. We're snipping at each other, and I find that desire in me just to escape, to go in the other room. That desire in me to just grow impatient or frustrated and try to set things right, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that compels me to remember what's true about the character of God. God is great. God is glorious. God is good and always good and God is gracious to you and me and when you and I set our gaze upon his character, demonstrated by the life, death, and resurrection by the Son of God, by God himself, we then open ourselves to the power of the gospel's work in us to transform us, to redeem us, to restore us, to continue to save us today, tomorrow, and until we are with him in glory and our salvation is made complete. The gospel is way more than we could have ever imagined. Father, thank you for the gift that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the work that was done on our behalf. That though the word gets used a lot, is never overstated. 
May the riches of the glorious gospel of grace so invade our lives, so reverberate in our lives today that we would continue to change moment by moment, day by day to to your glory and to declare the greatness of who you are that others might see the life change in us and be transformed by your spirit as well. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Would you stand with me? We're gonna conclude this service in the way that we have all the other messages in this gospel series by reading with absolute clarity the words from the pen of Paul about the gospel of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, verses three through five. Would you join me as we, le- as we read this out loud together? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. May we go with eyes that see the glory of grace and the goodness and the greatness of the character of God. And as we do, as we set our gaze upon him, the gospel would continue to change us, that it would burn brighter and brighter over the course of our lives until we see him in the light that we cannot even dare to look at. May God's grace be with us today and this week. Go in peace.